I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And with us today is Brian Hopkins, Vice President and Principal Analyst, fresh off keynoting Forrester's New Tech Forum this week in Boston. Welcome back, our technology prodigal son. Hey, thanks. It's good to be back. In your presentation yesterday, one of the key principles is time, Mm. which is what we should expect going forward is a compression of time that we've never seen before in terms of technology. Can you go through that a little bit in terms of what we can expect? What's the context of time here? Sure, sure. Well, the the argument, it's interesting. Um, Back in 2015, James McQuivy wrote this report that I thought was fabulous um, called, Will People Really Do That? And in that report, he talked about hyper-adoptive, hyper-adopters people who are willing to try things and if they don't work, try something else and do that faster and faster. And what he argues is, you know, for thousands of years, the human species didn't, was risk averse. who didn't like to try new things because if we came out of our cave, we'd get eaten. So we just, that's in our brain. And so what he pointed out is over, over um, in the last hundred years or so, the advance of technologies and, and even our security as humans, so we don't have to worry about being eaten, mean that successful humans are actually willing to take risks and willing to try things. And we've only seen that accelerate through the information technology revolution and so on and so forth. And so he made a statement in the paper that we we should expect to see an order of magnitude more change in the next 10 years than we've seen in the previous 10 years. So I talked to James about that and I thought, well, how would that be true? And <clears throat> I don't disagree with James, but I thought, well, in order for us to try new things, there have to be new things for us to try. At a, which means, and being released on a breakneck pace. Yes, which yeah. means businesses have to be always throwing more things out there for us to try to see see what sticks. And so I started doing some research, and um, I ran across some work by Ray Kurzweil, former MIT Googler, thought leader kind of thing. He wrote an essay back in 2001 called The Law of Accelerating Returns. And so I slogged my way through the that paper and tried to understand the math of it. It was pretty deep. Um, but one of the things he said in, in, in the paper is, we as humans tend to expect the pace of the future to be the pace of what we've observed in the past. The future is going to be like the past. And so when we see kind of things moving along at, you know, a gradual rate, then we assume that's what the future is going to be. But then he went on to kind of examine really what happens when one technology builds on another. So the example I gave yesterday was artificial intelligence, right? First, we had to have the chips. Then we had to have the software, Hadoop, and that took a long time. The chips took you know, 50 years to really get to that level. And then Hadoop came along, and that took about 10 years to mature, to really mature. And then in-memory processing came along, things like Spark, um, things like TPUs and GPUs and ways to accelerate certain kinds of processing. And that three or four years, right? And then all of a sudden, like within the last year, 18 months, because we've been following machine learning and all that for years, but this whole AI thing has gone from no one wants to talk about it to everybody wants to talk about it. And so... What you're actually observing is one technology builds on another, according to Ray, Ray, is the fact of this thing called accelerating returns. And mathematically, what that means is when returns start to accelerate and build on one another, every period of time, every like year, 18 months, two years, the fundamental measures of the system for IT, that's cost and speed or capacity, either get cut in half or get doubled. So every two years, every year, things are getting half as expensive as they were and twice as fast. You're describing kind of an opportunity set. So the argument would be technology is evolving mm-hmm. at a pace we, we sh- we've never experienced before and that it's going almost in a nonlinear way because it's just going in paces we've, not again, not experienced right. before. Right. But the measure of innovation to our, our conversation before this podcast is not necessarily do I innovate, mm-hmm. 
but can I operate at a similar speed such, such that I understand the nature of the technology and I can exploit that technology in my operations? So how do we think about that pace, that compression, yeah. that well, acceleration? I, yeah, I, I want to unpack that a, a little bit. Right? Yeah. So first off, I think we have been experiencing this pace. It just hasn't, we haven't really felt it. In other words, the impact of an accelerating system is Moore's law, right? So Ray in his work says, look, Moore's law is not the exception, it's the rule. And in fact, any search of the internet will show you all kinds of corollaries to Moore's law. These things have been going on for a very long time and we've seen them happen. The problem right now with any kind of exponential system is that the first, it starts with this very long tail where we really don't feel it. Yep. It just seems really gradual, but the, the because look, doubling one is two, still ain't very big. Doubling two is four, still kind of small. That number grows big. So I would argue that we're like a frog, right? The water's been boiling along, heating up gradually all the time. Yeah. We just kind of gotten used to it, right? So that's the first thing. The, the, I think the second thing you ask about is um, how do we start to operate in, in this world where, I mean, the point I made in the speech yesterday is I think we're in the information technology stone age. If you look at the pace of the doubling, these doubling systems and the pace of change that's going to happen, Ray Kurzweil in his paper in 2001 thought we're going to make more progress in the next 100 years than we have in the past 20,000 years. It's based on the math. Well, 20,000 years ago, we were in the Stone Age. Yeah, we were so cutting what, rocks going, hey, saying, wheel. So what, I, what I'm saying is, is we're going to look back at these iPhones, right? And we're going to look at these iPhone 10s or our children or their, our grandchildren or their children are going to look at iPhone 10s like we look at Stone Age instruments, not telegraphs, Stone Age tools, right? That's kind of blow your mind. So the question is, and I think what you're getting to is how do we, how do we cope in a world like that? So Brian, one of the issues we're facing right now is that the pace of operations mm -hmm. and organizational design is in stark contrast to the pace of technology innovation and adoption. Mm -hmm. So how do we think of a company five years from now? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's what we were talking about earlier. It's, it's, um, the way company corporate success stock price public companies is measured today is kind of the same as it's always been measured. Yeah. Right. Which means we have to go through these quarterly and annual uh, meetings on, with the street. Have you made money? You know, all those measures. And then <clears throat> the problem is, is that requires kind of this, this budgeting and planning cycle that runs smack up against the fact that your business may decide next quarter that it needs to build a new competency to compete. It takes you in a totally different direction from where you've planned and invested for the last two or three years. Right. And where you've been telling the street you're going. Yeah. Right. And then all of a sudden you don't need to be going that direction. You need to be going another direction. And, you know, eventually uh, <laughs> your investors don't believe you anymore. I mean, they're, you know, like for instance, take a look at what's going on with GE right now. Right. Eventually they say, you know, enough, we got to return to profitability. Right. And return on capital. And they restrain it. So the question, you know, on the GE question is, does it, they restrain it because they need to survive for the next couple of years or please the investors mm -hmm. or does it thwart or defer the advancements being made? I mean, that's maybe not just a st specific GE question, but a question for anyone who's going through major digital upheaval. Well, and yeah, it that, is, yeah. it, it's got to be financially disruptive for a period of time mm -hmm. and there's going to be a lot of bets lost. I mean, that's the basic oh, yeah. premise of fail, but fail fast is, there's a lot of losing bets out there. Well, I mean, I think the best example of that is some of the things that we see going on right now in, in the manufacturing space, right? The GE was certainly the first out of the block to say, look, we're going to build a software platform. We're going to become digital. We're become a software business. I think what they're finding is what other firms in the space, Siemens and Bosch, you know, they're going to find this out as well is 
making money as a software business is completely different from making money as a manufacturing business. The metrics are different. You have to uh, now sell kind of in a SaaS model. Um, there's all these things that, that are very different, and it requires a different set of leadership skills, a different board, a different uh, willingness to take risks on technology, a different way to, to report yourself out to the street, a whole different set of metrics if you're a SaaS business. And I think that what we're seeing is a lot of these companies who say, well, this making widgets anymore isn't as profitable as I need to be to keep my stock price up. I'm going to become a software business. I'm going to build a platform. And then what these firms are finding out is, eh, their customers don't really want platforms. They want solutions and they want them now. The platform piece kind of comes in as a second component to, hey, once I've built one solution, I can build another one if I have a platform. But right now they're, they're kind of in this spot of let's learn how to be a software business. Let's make a bet on a platform. Oh, companies don't really want platforms. They want solutions. How do we sell solutions? And there's going to be a lot of stub toes and failures and a couple successes. That's really where we are right now. So just jumping in here for a sec, two things come to mind in this conversation. Mm-hmm. Budget cycles will have to move from an annual process to something other. Yeah. You'll just need to adjust at a faster clip. And the separation of technology and business and the CIO's role of owning just the tech is no longer valid. Yeah. So how do companies make sense of business that is no longer based on years and the necessary change to the CIO's role? Well, I mean, I'm going to go on a limb here. I'm going to say the whole premise of C of a chief information officer is kind of fundamentally broken, right? Um, I think, you know, when you look at companies that are growing like gangbusters right now, which is mostly the digital natives, but companies that are achieving uh, the kind of growth um, that everybody wants to have, they, just, they don't have CIOs, right? They have chief technology officers, right? Right. They have chief visionaries, chief technology strategists, but technology is so infused in what they do that does it make sense to say, well, look, look, every business is a technology business. You're going to differentiate based on software. This survey, one of the surveys we just ran in our business technographics product of uh, business and technology service decision makers, I think about 1400. Um, so what are the factors that are going to inf- uh, impact your business decision making over the next uh, 12 months, I think? Um, and number one was technology. Number four was disruption, right? Number one was technology. You know, we talked earlier, um, that same survey says that only 7% of companies either aren't engaged in digital transformation or have already completed it. So it's something that everyone's doing. So 93% or, or are in motion right now. 93% are in motion or have completed that Some motion. Some stage, yeah. Some yeah. have said that a small percentage said they've done it, like 15%. Most are right in that digital transformation motion. It does call to mind. I mean, Forrester has long called the empowered customer. And part of that empowerment was premised on the very digitally empowered. And the argument you're posing is that companies need to become digitally empowered. They have to match it. Well, it's that, the age of the customer in full swing. Customers have become into consumers. We have become empowered and digital. And now companies, no matter what industry, B2B, manufacturing, old school as you get, construction services, realize they have to be digital too. And that's, and that's kind of the response that we're seeing, right? So, you know, in regards to the thing we are talking about in the role of the CIO, if you believe that you're, you're going to compete on technology, which obviously firms do according to our survey, and you believe that, you know, going digital is the way to do that, does it make sense to take all of your technology prowess, sing, single it up in a single organization and then say that organization, wall that organization off or somehow separate that from the, 
fundamental operating models and processes that are going to make you successful in the digital world. Or for some companies, actually what they've done is they've, they've walled them off and mm-hmm. then the business units have created their own technology tribes. So your ability to get leverage off technology well, is... Well, that, that's been going on for years. I think that it's, it's reached a critical point, right? So if you're going to compete on technology, then that technology has to be fundamental to every aspect of your business. You're not going to create a CIO organization and then ship off everything to them to do for you. That that model doesn't 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 work anymore. I think that's the fundamental problem, and I think a lot of CIOs are feeling that pain right now, which means the CIO role is really transforming into a number one a broker. How do my, how does how does the parts of my business that need to compete on technology get and use the technology that they need? Orchestration, across, orchestration, yeah. and then then the next piece is is so what investments should be made foundationally, right? to enable this pace of acceleration. And so we talked in the keynote yesterday, you know, we think it's connectivity, right? You have to be connected to your customers. You have to be connected to each other. You have to be connected to the physical world, depending on the business you're in. You have to be connected into your ecosystem, your partners. So connectivity, flexibility, you need to be in the public cloud. It may seem too expensive, that be damned. You need the innovation, the pace of innovation and the flexibility that that gives you. Right. So when your business says, hey, by the way, uh, we're going to change direction. We need a new competency to compete with Amazon. Amazon's moving into our market and we need this now. And you say, I'll have it for you next week, not in six months, not in a year next week. Well, you're not going to do that if you're locked into a data center on premise. You're only going to be able to do that using the agility you get in, in the public cloud. So you need agility. You need things like low code. Right. You were talking about this earlier. You need things like systems that are they can learn to learn, right? You need art, You need that artificial intelligence capability so that you don't have to reprogram things. You can retrain things, right? And then, and then the last thing you need is you need to be lightning fast and you need to build that platform right now that enables you to keep accelerating and keep getting faster. So as the pace gets faster, you get faster, right? And that investment needs to be made right now. And instead of saying, here's my one-year plan, two, three, four-year plan, you need to be saying, I'm going to invest my company in this incrementally until I have it. And then I'm going to keep investing to keep it running. And that should be somebody's job in the organization. That, that's a separate job. Then business lines of business can build the technology they need off that. There's a thought process that we've revisited before in different podcasts of technology doesn't sort of blur industry lines. It blows them up. And so industry lines have been kind of a safe haven for companies that could innovate at a certain pace. Mm-hmm. And that's not likely true. I mean, Amazon is disproving that principle. They come into a marketplace and they bring core competencies and expectations that just haven't been normal in the respect of markets, insurance or whether that's retail or whatever it might be. I mean, they come in there and they just say, no, it can be fun, done fundamentally different. So for a company like if I'm in food distribution um, in London and I see Amazon Fresh come in, who would have thought that logistics is going to have to be my core competency and I'm going to have to bring technology into that just to stay up at pace with the marketplace? Well, it goes back, first off, you made a point earlier I want to make sure we underline in, in addressing that, and that is when we look at the pace of innovation and how do companies keep up, the only way you can keep up, keep changing and evolving your business is to become a software business, right? Software can move faster than manual human processes. We know that. So if your business is dependent on manual human processes and it's not being run off software, then you can't keep up, right? So that's kind of, 
everyone kind of understands that intellectually, but then when you see Amazon moving into your market, you're like, holy crap, this is real. It's real. And, and so I was having a conversation with a client the other day and they were in financial services. And one of the things when I have these kind of inquiries with clients uh, along these lines is I say, okay, are you a financial services firm that uses software? Are you a software firm that sells financial products? And this one was like, well, we're a financial firm that uses software. And I know that's not a popular answer, but, you know, our industry is complex and we know our business and we've been doing this a hundred years and waka, 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 right? And that's a safe haven. Right, right. And that's a safe haven. And I said, okay, so um, um, are you concerned about uh, about Amazon moving into your into your business? Well, yeah, we are. What if Amazon starts to sell the kinds of financial service products that we have? What will we do? And I said, well, you got to think about how Amazon's doing that. Their number one way they're doing that is they're they're taking their cohort of loyal customers, right? And they're saying, look, we've created an experience where we can deliver anything you want to your doorstep in an hour. There it is. You're sitting under where you are. There it is, right? You love the software experience that we give you. And we do this by software and analytics and all those things, right? Well, we can take that same software analytics process and we can apply it to any service that you want. You want a car? Okay. You want financial services? We can do that too now. So, so the issue becomes is first they're moving their customers across markets, but the reason they're able to move their base of customers into all these markets is because at the end of the day, they're fundamentally a software platform. So when I said that to this guy, I was like, look, in order for you to keep up with Amazon, you're going to have to become a software business that sells financial services products and not a financial services business that uses software, right? Look at, I mean, BlackRock, right, has created that platform. And that's kind of become a pillar of their whole business is the is that trading platform. I think it's what you're anchoring on a little bit, which is when we say software, there's a part of me that says, here's the word platform. It says, I need to build a digital platform that is able to rapidly introduce new experiences, sunset those that don't work, introduce new products, enter new markets, please customers in ways I haven't envisioned before. And if I don't have that platform, I'm operating at a pace that others simply aren't. They're operating at twice the speed, three times the speed. They can enter my market. Yeah, platform is a totally overloaded word, and I'm as guilty of using it as anybody. I've, if you read my research, I've written a lot about platforms for insight, data analytics. But I wrote a research report with John Reimer last year that kind of looked at this platform word, and we like it broke it down at various levels. And we think that's what our customers really need to do is to think about, don't just say platform, talk about what platform you're talking about. So that there, there's this whole idea of a business platform, right, which is We've created a set of processes and technologies in a very kind of modular way that we can build out and be very nimble from a business process and business operating model perspective. And then you have all the technology platforms. So you have uh, um, what we call business solution type platforms, so marketing platforms, right, for building. And then you have data analytics, or what we call insight platforms. And then you have down at, uh, you know, operating system and infrastructure platforms. And they're all fair enough platforms. But... Um, the real thing that, you know, when, when I use the word platform, I mean, it is a way to, to support things that you're building so that you don't have to support each one individually. I do worry and I do see people I engage with mm-hmm. still trading on PowerPoint decks, thinking about it, postulating about it. But you're talking about companies that can go from the thought to the motion in a week where they're putting together the deck in a week. I mean, just companies operating at fundamentally different speeds and norms. How does that get reconciled going forward? Um, I've been working with a number of startups. You know, they, they work with us. They brief me all the time. And I'm seeing a select few basically tell me the same story. 
look, Brian, we have Fortune 500, Fortune 100 companies lined up out the door to work with us. We haven't got the capacity. So we're going we're gonna to be real selective about who we work with, right? The other side of that yesterday uh, um, that kind of came out at the forum was uh, a fellow by the name of John Sobel um, from a startup uh, was talking on a panel. And he, he basically said they go to companies, large companies, his startup, and um, the first thing in a lot of companies they get do is they get thrust in front of sourcing and vendor management. And SVM says, oh, yeah, we'd love to work with you. It's going to take us about six, eight months, maybe 12 months to fund you. And, oh, by the way, here's a 55-page contract. And in the contract, there's a line saying we get all your IP, right? Sign, sign here. Sign here, please. <laughs> yeah. And then they say, oh, no, no, everybody signs this. We'll never do that, of course. And, and this is like, no way I'm going to sign that. I'm going to go to the next company, Right. And so I think what we're seeing is kind of reversal in roles. What it used to be is the big companies, they, the larger company is, they think like monopolists. We're the big 800-pound gorilla, like the Walmart, right? If you want to do business with us, you're going to stand in line. We're going to intimidate the heck out of you. And if you don't want to do business with us, there's a thousand of you who, others do. of you who yeah. do, so goodbye. Now what we're seeing is that companies, big companies are realizing, holy moly, my competitive future is based on technology. And not only is it based on using the old mature technology, it's really based on who can form partnerships with startups, the right startups faster, and bring something innovative to market that creates a competitive advantage. So a lot of these startups, the really good ones, are finding themselves being able to turn away the big companies that don't kind of fit into their business. Look, in 18 months, a company could be gone. It could be, that's a funding cycle. It could be B round of capital or whatever. And so you can't come and say, yeah, I'll have your money in months. You say, I have to go right now. It's an interesting redistribution of market power because, you know, oh, to your yeah, point, totally. the, the big brands come in and go, I'm a big brand. Don't you guys know who I am and what kind of power I yield? In a similar fashion as power moved to the customer, power moved to the innovators. Yeah. Because they're just able to do things instinctually and natively that yeah. the brands can't and the brands are operating at a different metronome. Right. So we had uh, in the panel yesterday, we had Northwestern Mutual who had bought a fintech. This guy who's a fintech from New York City, he he recalled the first time he went into Milwaukee where everything in Milwaukee has Northwestern Mutual on it. And, you know, you worked in, at, at Northwestern Mutual. Your father worked at Northwestern Mutual. I mean, it's that kind of culture. I've been there. It's a great company. Believe me, I love the company. They do great things. But they're, you know, 100 plus year old and they've been doing things the same way for a very long time. But they realized they needed to change. And so what they did is they bought this this fintech. And now the fellow who founded this fintech is in charge of all customer experience for Northwestern Mutual. Wow. Right. And he talked about the culture clash and the way they did it is they have something called pizza box teams. And the re- it, it, I don't know if you ever heard that term, but a pizza box team means a team no larger than who can eat out of a p- one or two pizza boxes. So just very small teams. And he said that he created like 15 of them uh, and it was suits and, and jeans people together working on these comp, right? Suits meets some jeans. With, some with forks and knives and yeah, some yeah. people just with hands grabbing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, with, with this common set of goals. And, and, you know, that's how they got over that culture thing. So I think there's these cultural things, but, the, but at the end of the day, back to what you said, it's like you have to operate in a different way. The tables are turned. These technology startups are finding themselves with a whole lot of power they never used to have, right? They're not quite sure what to do with it. And it, it's just a totally different game right now. So, Brian, in, in a previous episode with Sam Stern, mm-hmm. we talked about how culture change could take up to five years. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, how are companies supposed to think about the pace of technology and disruption? 
I haven't come up with a magic solution for culture change. I don't think anybody has. Humans only, when you have a, a leadership and, and employees who have been around for years and there's a certain way that things get done, it's impossible for any leader to snap their fingers short of firing everyone and hiring a whole new crew in, which, you know, it doesn't make sense if you're building a product or a service because your customers suffer. I don't know any answer to that with the exception of if I were in a leadership position in a company right now, I would start and accelerate that culture change as quickly as I possibly could because I think at some point it's like musical chairs. The music is going to stop and those who haven't made the culture change are going to be stuck making that culture change and everybody else is going to be accelerating at the pace of business. It's interesting. We we had s- several discussions associated with AI about proof of concepts. Mm-hmm. And a key part of the discussion was they were doing the proof of concepts to understand the nature of the technology, how it might work, mm-hmm. how it does work. But they, they didn't really do the next step, which is bring it into the operations. And it does strike me that one way to stimulate faster culture change is to put these new technologies that change the way people work in mm-hmm. flight with people. Mm-hmm. Can technology proof of concepts be used, even in your example of Northwest Mutual, in, in terms of driving faster adoption of change? I'll take away the word culture, just adoption yeah. of change. Well, yeah. I mean, a couple. there's a really a couple of thoughts. I want to unpack that a bit. Um, first off, one of the things that we noticed, um, Bobby Cameron, another analyst colleague of mine, he came to me, in fact, yesterday, and he said, you know, he writes about innovation. We talk about corporate innovation. We have a playbook on it. It's a very mature subject for us. So he gets all these innovation type inquiries and client engagements. What finally dawned on him, and I kind of see this as well in my things, is people say innovation, but what they really, really mean and what he finally surrendered to is what they really mean is we want to play with technology to understand what it can do for us. So now that he started to kind of understand that's what they mean, he kind of digs a little further because it's not always like, here's our innovation process is the answer. The answer is often, how do you understand what these new technologies are? So you can understand what they can do for you, which is the kind of the second piece I want to unpack. I think, you know, proof of concepts, great idea, not a new idea. Um, in, in kind of the old world, when I was a practitioner, the common complaint was, hey, this proof of concept went so good that it turned into production and it's a mess because we didn't figure out how to support it. We didn't really do all the work we need to do to make sure it was enterprise ready. Um, I think that can still be true. But I think the more powerful thing is to ask yourself, let's proof of concept this technology to figure out how it can kill us, right? Let's look at technology from a perspective of, okay, look, either we're going to master this technology or a competitor is going to master this technology. And if a competitor masters this technology, how are they going to put us, put us out of business? And then how do we disrupt ourselves around that? But in a world where we have so many emerging technologies, I mean, in your recent report, you talked about mm-hmm. 10 top tech trends mm-hmm. in the next yeah. two years. How do you determine which technologies to do that for? I mean, you would be hosed, I would feel like, by all of the potential examples or use cases. Yeah, you do it by not focusing on the technologies. You're right. There's, I mean, we do a, I do a report every year called the top 15 emerging technologies, mm-hmm. but really those are groups and each technology in that 15 list is a dozen different things. Sure. And so- it can be a daunting list and the list is getting bigger. So what we talk about in, in, in the report that we just published on trends is, I think the important thing to understand is business motion. How is business changing based on consumers who have gone digital and technologies that are empowering businesses to change and consumers to change? What are the trends that are impacting you the most from point A to point B? 
And what is the natural projection of those trends? And what does that mean for you? And then once you kind of understand a trend, then you can look at the technologies under the trend and say, how could these technologies and the natural projection of this trend really undermine my business? So, you know, take, take software learns to learn, right? Software learns to learn. You could say that's about artificial intelligence, but what it's really about is software systems that through machine learning and AI and those things are increasingly learning how to adapt to us and interact with us and learning what we need and doing it rather than having to be programmed. Mm-hmm. Right. So depending on which industry you're in, that aha, that trend can have a lot of impacts on you that would lead you to experiment with artificial intelligence in many different ways. But going back to your pizza box example, this is the idea where the business needs to master technology at a level of, of granularity that has not been the expectation before. Mm-hmm. And the technologists have to understand the nature of business at a level of granularity, both in terms of upside and risk that they haven't seen before. Well, that fusion has to take place. A technologist is a businessist. Wow. What's the difference? If all business is going to be driven forward by technology prowess, then saying there's technologists who are these separate special wizards over here that know technology, that's your business. Yeah. It's a businessist, <laughs> right? That's I mean, new. Yeah. It's the title of the podcast, actually. The <laughs> yeah. sell the itself. The yeah. introduction of the businesses. So, Brian, we're, we're closing in on holiday season. You yeah, know, whatever, yeah. whatever you know, religion you abide by, nonetheless, you're going to give a gift to somebody. What gift would you give to a CEO who's contemplating all of these technology issues that are abounding in the marketplace? I'd give him a scalable, universal quantum computer. Wow. <laughs> If I hadn't, so yeah, you're going to have, have to exist. say more. <laughs> they don't exist right now. But um, no, seriously, I, we just re- re- released a report, a Forrester first kind of look at uh, uh, quantum computing. I've been following it for five or six years now. And we've always kind of put it outside the horizon of where we think our clients need to focus. And we've just moved it inside that boundary by putting this report out. So we think quantum computers are really these mysterious things that operate based on physics that most of us don't understand. And all it means is they can solve problems, uh, something called hard problems, which are problems that the more data or the more variables you stick into the equation, that the complexity and the time for a classic computer to solve that problem kind of has that exponential thing. So eventually you get to the point where if my computer could run for about 20 years, it might solve this problem, but it can't. Need some time to pra- chew on pra- it. Pra- yeah, it's, sort of like, it's sort of like deep thought. Deep thought took a yeah, long time yeah. to get to 42. Yeah. So quantum computers can almost by magic solve some problems, right? But the question is, is number one, what is a quantum computer and when will it be ready for me? So in the report, we lay out, there's two kinds of quantum computers. There's this thing we call, I call it a scalable universal quantum computer. And that scalable means that it can actually get big enough to solve real world problems. And universal means like our computers today, it can be generally programmed to solve almost any kind of problem that quantum computers can solve. That's going to be very disruptive. Everyone's kind of concerned about that. But the first thing we say in the report is, yeah, it's going to be 10 more like 20 years before we, before we get these things, right? There's a lot of hard problems to solve. In the short term, there's this thing that we call in the report a specialized quantum computer. So like D-Wave has a, a, something called an adiabatic quantum annealer that can solve optimization type problems. Uh, they claim it can solve them faster than classic computers. That's under debate, but still they've had a product for 10 years, right? A long time. Um, Then there's some work going on by Google, there's work going on by IBM, there's work going on by Microsoft. And so we think in the next three to five years, we're going to start to see 
select problems, maybe chemistry or materials or machine learning problems, where quantum computers exposed, where you can call them through the cloud, like, you know, you'll have graphic processing units, uh, TPUs, and maybe you'll even have QPUs at some point, where you can take a problem like a machine learning problem, call a, call a quantum algorithm, have that algorithm go off and work on some quantum computer in someone's data center, come back and give you the answer, and then plug that into your into your software, right? We think that's going to happen in the next three to five years. And so the report says, well, what are the use cases for that? Who's doing it? What should you really look for in terms of having that capability while we wait for these general, universal, scalable things to appear? And now I want one. Yeah. Yeah, you it does. Me, it does sort of everybody else. It sort of just sort of says that Gene Roddenberry sort of was was not really a futurist. He was just sort of a better predictor of the future than other people. I mean, sort of channeling Gene for a second. So, Brian, we started with the Stone Age wheels. Mm-hmm. We moved towards quantum. You mm-hmm. know, big problems. Yeah. I mean, we're at a pace of technology disruption mm-hmm. that we simply haven't seen. Right. Leaders don't know how to lead at that pace. Companies don't know how to operate at that pace. Or some do. They were born that way. Mm-hmm. Most don't. So what does it mean to companies that are staring at this hard, aren't organized for it, mm-hmm. maybe not ready for it? How do they make sure that they just, they, they survive, but, you know, those that can thrive? What, what does it mean for them? Well, we talked about it already. So first you have to have the culture and the leadership in place to realize you're a technology or a software business that makes, transacts, sells services or products, right? And so that's a cultural change. I mean, all the problems that we run into basically turn into people problems. Technology, if you understand it, always does exactly what it's been programmed or set up to do, right? If you understand its limitations well enough. So there's a cultural change aspect that can only happen so fast. So you got to get started on that. And then from a, from a, from a technology perspective, you need, to, you need to begin envisioning who you want to be, where your competitive advantage is, and what kind of platform you need to be able to create that advantage, but also as the future becomes more clear and as we accelerate, you can move faster and you can start to pivot. So remember, we talked about connected, agile, and fast, right? Start building that now and commit to keep on building it forever as you make the culture change. I think those are the two keys. Great to have you back, Brian, and thank you for the gift. (laughs) Absolutely, (laughs) I wish I could actually give you one. It's prediction season. Download Forrester's 2018 predictions guide at for.com slash predictions. That's F-O-R-R.com slash predictions. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.